Well, as uh, we continue our journey through First Peter, I was thinking this week and just uh, having the privilege of coaching Ezra in basketball. I'm an assistant this time, so I get in less trouble. Um, but uh, as I was thinking back to my little uh, brief playing career and having fun, enjoying basketball, I remember one of the uh, things the coaches all to, tried to figure out with me was how to get me to have confidence in what I could do. And... Um, They would try all sorts of things. One coach tried to get me angry before games because I seemed to play a lot better when I was that focused. And and others tried to be real positive with me. But that confidence made all the difference in uh, whether I could get on a roll and start shooting and playing well. Uh, Later on, I discovered that it would have helped if I had worn sports goggles or some sort of contacts. But uh, that was a different issue. But confidence matters. And it matters in in your workplace, uh, with your family, if you're... Uh, with your spouse, in your relationships. Confidence matters. And confidence usually comes from belief in something or belief, as the world would say, in yourself. And what is the foundation of your confidence? What do you place your confidence in? Or who do you place your confidence in? It's quite often when our confidence is shaken or when we feel unconfident or or under attack that we can begin to lash out and take offense at others or or to begin to say things that we regret because we're uncomfortable and insecure. And the real question is, what are you going to do when you have those cracks in the foundation? What are you going to do whenever your confidence is shaken? Now, we live in Colorado Springs, right? So in Colorado Springs... This is uh, like from one of the old city things. See, if my thing's not happy today, so Randy may have to help me out for a little bit. Um, but uh, in Colorado Springs, you look and you see houses, right? So if you're going to buy a house, you want to see, has it settled well? You want to go in the basement, look for cracks, see how the foundation is doing? And uh, one of the things you do, and we learned whenever we started to work on our basement, is they even... Uh, float the walls in the basement because there's like no confidence that it's going to be totally settled. So they float the walls to make sure um, that the foundation can indeed uh, survive. And uh, Randy, you can go to that next slide there. And so as we look at that, you can see once you look in there close, whenever the, if the foundation begins to shift and crack, uh, then you begin to have some pretty uh, severe problems. And what we've been looking at here in First Peter, in the first chapter, uh, he has been going through our confidence. He's been talking about what we need to be confident in, where we need to place our trust. And so the foundations of an unoffendable life. If you're going to be unoffendable, you've got to have confidence in the Lord. You've got to make sure you know what you believe. So the first thing he did is says we have a living hope, right? Being through and said you've got all these things to look forward to. All these promises that are sure in Christ. That are eternal, unfading, unperishable. Do you believe that? Live with hope. Active. Live as if you believe that God has a plan for your life and a place for you. And then we see that we're to be living in trust. We, we looked at that last week. It's this great call for us to be holy as God is holy and to conduct ourselves in a way that is honorable and to trust in the one true foundation, which is the word of God, which is infallible, the authority for our lives given to us by the Lord. And so as we look at that and we experience that, we are going to talk today and add to that with this picture of 
what it looks like to live in alignment. What does it look like to live in alignment? If you know anything about the foundations, and especially in the olden days, they used to set a cornerstone, and everything would be aligned off of that cornerstone so that the building would be true and right. And we're going to be talking about that today as we enter into this passage in Peter. What does it look like to live in alignment? And so he says this in, in chapter 2. He says, So put away all malice and deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. Like newborn infants, long for pure spiritual milk, that it, but by it you may grow up into salvation, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. And so the first thing we need to do with our uh, alignment is to align our uh, desires and deal with our desires. We have to put our desires in line with God's desires. And you'll see this throughout all the scriptures. There's going to be a section that says, here's what you put away. But Christianity isn't just about boundaries, right? It's not just about avoiding sin. It's about not only avoiding sin and choosing to put those things away, but then we'll see God always has something else for us to put on, a transformation of heart, a new perspective, a new attitude to take. And as we look at this and we look at these words, it's, it's pretty interesting what he's calling us to put away. Mac, malice, not many people use that word anymore, malice. It's an active ill will or intent. An active ill will or intent in actions. And so it, it, it's just this active desire to do something against someone else, to look for the opportunity to do it. It's actively having enemies in your life, and that's the main per perspective you take on people that don't agree with you. It's something that's ongoing. It's, I guess, your, your disposition tends to always look for someone to argue with or be angry at. He's saying, put that away. Uh, don't do that. And then he, he has deceit. And he says here with deceit, the word is the one commonly used in Scripture for bait or to deceive, to trick, like, like fishing bait. You try and get them to think that it's valuable and real, but whenever the fish takes it, they're hooked, and it's too late for them. And so we're to put away all deceit, all trickery, trying to make things look good or trying to cover up our sins or trying to fool others, pretend we're confident when we're not. And then it says, put away hypocrisy. And hypocrisy, that's, that's pretty, pretty tough, right? That, that's that when our words don't match our actions, when we look at people and they say, well, do as you say, not as you really do. You say you're a Christian, but I don't see you living it out in your life. It's giving, it's giving up that right uh, to be jealous of others is this idea of envy, that next piece there. And so we have the hypocrisy and the idea of envy. We're to give up all envy and slander. And envy is that right to judge one another. It's that right to look over and to judge somebody else and, and to judge them as good or bad or to want something that they have, that desire to be like them or that jealousy of how their life is going. So we're to give up envy as well. But within this, uh, we're also to give up slander. That's any speech which harms or is intended to harm another person. Um, 
And especially, usually that's not said to their face, right? Slander something uh, people go around and say about others. And we justify it in all sorts of ways. Um, well, I just thought you should know. I just, I'm just speaking the facts. And in reality, we are not. And so, if you ever really do this and weed these things out in your life, it kind of leaves you vulnerable, wouldn't it? All of these things listed are defense mechanisms that we use to protect ourselves from being hurt. And when we give up those things, you'd almost feel kind of naked and alone there and be vulnerable emotionally. <laughs> when you're really setting those things aside and being open to anybody and having a perspective God has of love towards others, you leave yourself open to be attacked and you're like, no, I don't want that. Now, in our verse here in in our translation, we often see there's a period and then verse 2. But in reality, in the original Greek, this is all one sentence, verses 1 through 3. It's all one thought. And the reason that's important is because it's connected. It's not two separate things. And so whenever he says, like newborn infants long for pure spiritual milk, that you may grow up into salvation, um, this idea of longing uh, for pure spiritual milk, it's not like some other passages that have referred to milk as the basics of the gospel, right? It's, you, you desire the milk, not the meat of the word. Uh, what he's saying here, he's saying imitate the baby's desire for milk. When a baby is hungry and cries, that baby desires milk. We're desire to desire the word of God in that same way. We're to long for the word of God, for the truth of God to be in our lives. And so, as we long for that, um, we're longing, and Peter connects it to God's word, and you remember he just spoke of it as being living and imperishable and active in our lives and abiding in our lives. And it's the word of God that we're to long for that changes us, that actually gives us the power to put away all the malice and all of those evil things. And so... The desire uh, for God's word is a desire that is supposed to help us strengthen and grow to become more like Christ. And so one of the things, if you want to grow spiritually, is you've got to get in God's word because it's, that's the milk. That's what's going to make your bones strong. That's what's going to give you a foundation to stand on. That's how the Holy Spirit works. And then he, he moves and he concludes. He said, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good, and that's a quote from Psalm 34, 8. Taste and see that the Lord, he is good. Wayne Grudem says this. He says, to drink the milk of the word is to taste again and again what God is like. For in hearing the Lord's words, believers experience the joy of personal fellowship with the Lord himself. So to be in the word of God is to taste again and again what God is like get a, a glimpse and, and to, to be and to commune with him like that good meal you want to go back and taste it and savor each bite when it's really good and enjoy it see uh, uh, the ways that we desire uh, I believe uh, God's truth in our lives and desire God's word is remembering that um, this is our life source uh, in First John, it says Jesus was the Word, and the Word was God, and the Word was with God. These are the very words of life that he gives us. He called himself the bread of life. We're to eat of it. Uh, but we're also uh, to remember that 
it's going to be hard uh, to get things out of God's word because the Holy Spirit works in us. And if we aren't dealing with sin and putting away sin and confessing sin and attacking sin, eventually uh, we come to this and we're like, well, we're getting nothing out of it. Well, we've set up an old, a barrier in our heart, haven't we? And that's why even believers, we confess our sins. We know they're for, forgiven, completely justified before God, and yet they get in the way of our relationship with God and our growth. And so, and then as we do that, we, we need to admit our need for God's word in our life. It's not something that you ever grow past, which there's some movements to talk about today. I'm beyond God's word now. I've graduated to just a personal connection with him. I've left the word of God behind. I don't see that we ever need to do that or will ever need to do that. And then finally, we grow as we pursue spiritual growth and we survey and we look at the blessings God's given us that helps us in our lives to grow. And so as he says this, he says all believers, uh, when he's talking about this, this idea of tasting, um, experience how gracious the Lord is. And that should compel us to seek more of him. And then in verse 4, he shifts and he says that as you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house, a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. So the idea of coming to him, that, that phrase there has this idea of, of remaining, coming and not just coming and going away, but coming and sitting in God's presence and staying there. That idea of coming is this idea of intimate fellowship with God, of coming and just being in his presence, setting aside time to be with God. Right? We know that if we have a loved one or a child or a spouse, somebody important in our lives, it's important to spend time with them, uninterrupted time that shows you care. We're to have that desire to come to the Lord and remain in his presence. And yet then here, he, he gives us some in, interesting pictures, and it's going to tie in here in a moment with who Christ is. It says, Christ, a living stone, rejected my men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious. Well, this idea of living stones is, is throughout the scriptures. It's a picture that we see of Jesus in the Old Testament in Psalm 118. It points to the Messiah as being a rejected stone, a corner or building stone. In Isaiah, uh, the Messiah is said to be a stone that those who oppose him will stumble over. And Daniel refers to the coming kingdom as one that will be a conquering or an overcoming stone. And then we see that Jesus spoke of himself in this way as a stone, as a cornerstone that the builders rejected being the Jewish establishment. And yet, we're also called living stones. Isn't that interesting? Uh, no one I've ever known can make a stone come to life, although many people have pet rocks. Uh, living stones, uh, this idea of being solid and yet alive, being firm and yet alive, is a picture that he says and he builds here. And he talks about this royal priesthood, which became one of the key points of the whole reformation is this idea that you are a royal priesthood this idea of the priesthood of all believers now some these days are beginning to turn this and teach that you're a priesthood in and of yourself that you possess all of those gifts of the apostles um, prophetic gifts and 
things of the sort. Now, each person within you is your own church. And uh, yeah, if you look at this context, it's always built up in the plural, living stones, a priesthood of all believers. The idea of priesthood is multiple people together forming this. And the priesthood, of course, is what? The people who were set apart, first off, just as we read last week, to be holy is to be set apart for God's purposes. And so we're a priesthood. Each of you is set apart. But now, because of the cross, what happened? You have direct access to God. You don't have to go through a priest or through the sacrificial system. Jesus died once for all. Right? So the priesthood of all believers is this access, the ability, it says, to taste and see that he is good and to come and sit in his presence. The Holy Spirit dwells in us. Right? Other passages talk directly about that, that your body is a living temple because the Holy Spirit dwells in each of us as believers. And so it's not focused on personal freedom, but it's a worldwide assignment to all believers to come to God, to commune with him, to have that relationship with him. And through that relationship, then uh, we see that we are um, going to uh, be built up. And so we're living stones that are linked together. We're linked together because of Christ. We're brothers and sisters in Christ. We're now family. Uh, we have access to God. And um, we're also called uh, to be in Christ and to, as I lost my little thing here, there we go, to be stones that are built up. Built up the idea of growing, the idea of becoming more like Christ, not staying the same. And so... As we look at this, we have uh, spiritual sacrifices, it says. What are spiritual sacrifices? We're to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Well, we offer the strength of our body. That tells us in Romans that we can offer ourselves as a living sacrifice, uh, giving who we are and our bodies, doing the work for the Lord, praising the Lord with our voices. Um, we're, we're to do good. We're to do good to others and do good to those who persecute us. We're to do good to one another and serve one another in the body of Christ using our spiritual gifts. Um, spiritual sacrifices are sharing our resources, bringing Christ our first fruits so that his kingdom can be built up. And uh, we can also bring people to Christ. That's a spiritual act of sacrifice, giving your life and serving others so that they might come to know the gospel and live in it. And finally, you can grow up spiritually, I believe, by uh, setting aside your desires for the good of someone else. Sacrificing your personal preferences so that, and your personal freedoms so that somebody might be able to connect to Christ. And you remove a barrier so they can at least hear the gospel and not just be offended by what you have to say. So the whole idea here is we are to align our lives with Christ as the cornerstone. And as you align your life with Christ... Uh, as the cornerstone, as you look at this, the, the picture here of, of uh, being aligned, and uh, yeah, Randy, I'll let you switch it to that one that looks like Christ, the, the next picture. But um, as we align our lives with Christ, we'll begin to look more like Christ and less like the world, and the world will notice. And depending on what time period in history you've lived in and what culture you live in and and the people you interact with, that alignment with Christ may stand out more at some time than others, right? 
your beliefs may stick out more than others depending on where you work or, or the people who are your neighbors or even within your extended family if they don't follow Christ. Some choices may not make sense. And we've noticed that even with our children as they've grown up and they get into junior high and now we have one in high school. Is that, well, it's quite a bit different. They begin to see, wow, our beliefs really don't line up. We don't get to do all these things or take part of all these things that other kids get to do. And then they have to move and shift from, are we going to choose these values on our own? And not just because of our parents. And so as we look at this, we begin to see uh, what's happening here is we're aligning with Christ. And here's what it says is going to happen when we do this. Verse 6, for it stands in scripture, behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone, chosen and precious. And whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, the stone that the builder rejected has become the cornerstone and the stone of stumbling, a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. And so as we look at this, I I remember growing up in this idea of taking offense, a stumbling block. And when we grew up, it was kind of cool in junior high, especially to be able to do a one-liner and make all your friends laugh by putting someone else down. Uh, put a zinger in there or to tell a mama, your mama is this or that joke. And, 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 you know, it used to be this juvenile thing. And yet, as time has gone on, I've seen it kind of permeates our society with the, the rise of social media. And they even have whole shows that they have where you go back and forth trying to insult one another until somebody finally breaks. And, get, and as soon as you're angry and you lose it, you lose the game. And, and they call them, well, this is probably not quite up to date, but at least within the last 10 years, they'd be like, oh, snap, you got them. And it's just become a place where even on the TV this week, you're waiting and you're listening for facts and both sides are just trying to do one-liners to get the headlines. And we see it when adults interact and kids interact. It's, it's permeated our society trying to offend somebody. <laughs> We've made it acceptable and easy to offend others. It's another one of our First Amendment rights in this age of rage is to be offended and to be able to give a one-liner back to attack the person and get them upset or at least to hurt them in some way. I think the reality though in the day-to-day life is that most of us go about our days trying not to offend people, right? You go to someone's house, you want to see if your shoes should be on or, or they should be off. Um, you, you try and dress in a way that may or may not, uh, hopefully will not offend the people that you're with. Um, you can try and walk into a situation and Make sure that you are saying the right words, being careful in what you do. If you're visiting somebody, especially if you're on a short-term missions trip or in the missions field, you want to eat in a way that doesn't offend them. Or if they bring you a food, uh, even though it might scare you, you want to try it a little bit so that you don't offend them. That's the way the Christian life is supposed to look like, this effort not to offend. And and I've always said this, there's only one way to offend somebody if you're a Christian. And our goal is to offend others. Did you know that? But the only offense somebody should take is Christ. And that's hard work to remove myself out of the way, to 
to get my opinions and my own personal frustration with sin done against me or the sinful lifestyles of others or choices. And yet the goal is, the hope is that when they see Christ that they're dealing just with Christ, the cornerstone. Either you're going to accept him as true or you're going to be offended by him. And we shouldn't be so shocked by when people come face to face with the gospel and what Jesus says that it's a stumbling block. That's why the Holy Spirit has to do his work in this world, isn't it? But Christ is to be the stumbling block for people who don't align with Jesus. He is the stone that the builders rejected. And so my hope is that the more we grow in Christ is that we are aligning our lives in such a way that people are rejecting Jesus and not us. And we don't want to avoid the truth or hide the truth, but we know that for somebody to actually change and deal with all the sin in their life, it's got to be dealt with first on who is Jesus Christ. So the question may come this morning is, um, uh, before you might, might be just this question of, well, does uh, any of this really matter? <laughs> so what? It sounds great on paper, but what does it really look like to live like this? Is this practical? Can you actually apply this to real-life situations? Well, in the middle of this uh, impeachment trial, and you might have heard that's going on this week, um, in the midst of all that, a few news outlets caught wind of, you know, a couple million people showing up in D.C. on Friday. And uh, it's called the March for Life. And, and I just, it was Friday, as I was working, I was like, let's do a little survey. I went around to different news sites and different places to see how many would actually cover that. Um, some did and some didn't. So it's kind of a mixed bag. A, a little more covered it than I thought, so that was good. But, I mean, can you think of a more divisive issue which causes offense in our society than abortion? Uh, it's a pretty hot topic. But see, Peter is telling us that how we hold to the truth matters. And he reminds us of our role in this world is to point people to Christ. Now, we're not the cornerstone, neither is our political position or beliefs. So the question is, how can we stand for life in a way that points people to Jesus over and above our own positions? And that's the next slide you can put up there. And... um, Ask yourself that question. How can you live in a way that points people to Christ more than your position? And I'm not saying give up what you believe or stand for, but how can you make sure that Christ is seen more than that value, that Christ is that way? Well, it begins with what? Go back to verse 1. If you're going to do that, you've got to put away all malice and deceit and hypocrisy and envy and slander is the hard one of people who don't believe that way. You have to put away all of those opportunities which will be freely given to you and encouraged. And so often I see that we hold to our positions in such a way that I wouldn't want to listen either, even if I agree with the person. We've seen that there's extreme value in the peaceful protest in March, like Friday, March for Life, and There's extreme value in sharing just medical facts and providing medical care. And yet we've seen that 
that this has been an issue that I've been passionate about since I began to realize what was going on. Early on, I think uh, the wife of one of our youth pastors, Dan Atwood, his wife was active in that and taught us as a youth group about this issue. And I remember thinking to myself and saying, when science catches up, we're going to win this because this is the one area that nobody's going to be able to debate is when a life is a life. And we've seen it. I've grown up and I've seen it. We can save babies at such a young age. It's absolutely amazing. And all the facts we know about when they feel and don't feel in the human body. And yet, now we're calling for even more extreme things and hearts have gotten even harder despite those facts. And it's left me a little bit miffed at what's going on in our culture. And so how do we respond in real life? Well, I want to share with you a story of a volunteer named Lisa who works at a local pregnancy center in the South. It's an article, and in the article, the names are changed but, um, to protect privacy. But uh, she shares some stories of what she encountered on the ground level of this, trying to live out the gospel and actually show us how to apply this. She says, over, over the course of uh, uh, one pregnancy, Leslie came in and they decided to keep the child with the boyfriend that she had. And we saw them quite often and we were able to help them with diapers and clothing and formula after the baby was born. We prayed for them. We prayed for a job for her husband, Frank, and praise the Lord, he found one. We prayed for her a job to work from home and she found an IT job. And they got married, and they're actually attending a church regularly. Regularly, And it was with great joy uh, that we got to have a front row seat to that transformation of the work of God in their lives. She says, there are many clients whom we've had the privilege of serving and seeing the work of the Lord in their lives and then over the course of many months. One young woman I counseled was contemplating abortion. We, she left the clinic after we counseled her. We didn't know what had happened. Nine months later, she showed up in our office with her baby named Angel. She has become one of our greatest advocates. She was left abandoned and, and, and discovered the man she was with has actually married, and so they thought for sure she was going to end that life, but now she's one of the most enthusiastic ambassadors and has brought many other women in for ministry and support. But then she says, there are sad stories too. A client who called us gasping for breath after having made the decision and already left the abortion clinic. The young girl pregnant from being raped by her uncle. Another girl pregnant from the coyotes who was telling her, I can get you across the border. The distraught mom in tears crying out to the Lord in Spanish, our translator prayed for her daughter and for her marriage. And more than once she says, I picked up the newspaper only to read that a client who had visited was just arrested. And here's where you need to really listen. To some, our clients are merely nameless, faceless, political pawns. But we see their faces. We know their names. The Bible instructs us to care for the widow and the orphan, those without a voice who need protection to advocate for life. This is true religion. That's what James tells us. To advocate for life is more than advocating for the life of the unborn. We want to advocate for the mom. And I would add myself that when available, often not, advocate for the healing in the Father as well. I discovered my clients and I are the same in so many ways. 
There are differences in ethnicity and background and sometimes socioeconomic status, but guess what? We have much in common. We've made bad decisions. We've both done wrong. We've had people do wrong against us. And Randy, you can go to that last slide there. I'll put up her last quote. It says, what we need, all of us, what we need most and want is hope and forgiveness and grace. We need Jesus. Our need is real and it is great, but greater still is the life and hope that Jesus offers. She says, I am struck anew by the realness of the gospel in these situations. You see what she did there? She put herself on, not above them in judgment, but Christ is her cornerstone. So she aligned herself with them and realized, I need Jesus just as much as you. I am not any better than you. She humbled herself and served them. That's what it looks like to love the Lord and to love your neighbor. And that's where real change on positions happens, isn't it? Face-to-face, life-to-life, personal love and care. In verses 9 through 12, we see this summed up, how to live this out. He says, he gives us a commission. You're a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Our confidence has to be in Christ and our position in him. We are a royal priesthood, and yet so many of us are just like Megxit, and we want to disown our royal duties. And we would rather be comfortable and live life apart from all those expectations of us as followers of Christ. And yet we're called to embrace them and to proclaim what the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into marvelous light. Where were we called from? out of darkness (laughs) we have to remember that and he says this once you were not a people but now you are God's people once you had not received mercy but now you've received mercy it's exactly what she said we got to remember that once once we were without Christ once we needed mercy and he gave it to us how can we withhold it from those who even make choices that break our hearts and offend us to the core and what we want to defend. So he says, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners, as exiles, abstain from the passions of the flesh. Don't give in to this war of words or to flinging insults or to being angry at the people on the other side. Be angry at the position for sure. But make sure that you keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. There's one talk show pundit, probably one of the strongest voices on the left, who said he's been under attack recently by those on the left side for his position on abortion. He said, I, I can get the environment and the homosexual issues and other political issues, but he says, when it comes to abortion, I can't help but sympathize because it's becoming a life. We say it is a life, but he's beginning to admit, he's saying they're fighting for life. And you have to respect that. I was quite surprised by this admission, and yet you can see that whenever Christ is front and foremost, and we begin to lay that there, that's the beauty of being built up in Christ, being living stones. We're all different shapes, sizes, and colors, and gifts, and and personalities and ethnicities and 
When we look at the gold, global church, though, we see something strange. It doesn't usually happen in the world. Enemies become brothers and sisters and love one another across all sorts of issues and lines. We're to be the one place where things and justice and unity truly happens is within the walls of the church. We, we're to be the people who would rather win a heart than to win a single argument. But to do that, it's going to take sacrifice and time and trusting that Christ is indeed the cornerstone. And when we mess up, you know what? It's okay to go to someone and say, you know, I messed up there. And to realign ourselves. It's going to be a constant battle. But I tell you, if we choose to do that, we will honor the Lord. And around the world, some people do that. And their honoring the Lord takes them even to the point of death. But they don't break and they don't bend or fight back because they want to follow Christ's example and point people to Christ. And so we're going to transition here into communion this morning. And I just wanted to tie it back to the, the end of this message just to get us an opportunity to reflect and to think about what is it that God has at work in our lives right now. Maybe we have hypocrisy or envy or slander or deceit or malice in our hearts. Or maybe it's just that we just don't long to sit in the presence of Jesus, long for his word. And maybe it could be that the cross truly is a stumbling stone for you right now, that you need to come to the Lord and to realize that Jesus is who he says he is. He's not offended by our sin <laughs> whenever he looks at Christ who died for our sin. If you don't want God to be offended by your sin, you've got to come to Christ, come to him and say, Lord, forgive me of my sin. I believe you died and rose again. And for those of us who are believers, this is a time of remembrance to remember this, to remember and to, I'd encourage you as we pass out the, the bread and the drinks this morning that 